I don't think that tarot requires that you be a psychic, right? I think that that's also really why I, I like to stress this idea that you, know, you don't have to spend all this time yeah, learning how to get these big intuitive hits or, or visions. Just learn how to read your cards. Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose wizards. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. My guest today is Liz Wirth, tarot reader and author. She is the author of seven books, including The Power of Tarot and Going Beyond the Little White Book, A Contemporary Guide to Tarot. Her writing has appeared in Flare Magazine, Refinery29, Chatelaine, The Globe and Mail, and more. She runs an online tarot school that welcomes students from around the world. Liz, welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I took a class or saw one of your lectures at the Northwest Tarot Symposium in 2020, like a week before the world sort of shut down. So you were probably the last person from outside the country that I interacted with. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wait, that might not be true. A a friend of mine came back from Germany and I I talked to him, so that might count. Um, so when I was sort of like uh, researching stuff for the podcast, I found out that you have a Wikipedia page. I, I think I do, yeah. And you have yeah. kind of like a um, a sordid pre-tarot history. Uh, you are apparently one of the trailblazers uh, in writing about the history of Canadian punk rock. Yeah, this is not, it's not untrue. Mm-hmm. Is this mm-hmm. something that like, yeah. do you consider yourself to still be a punk rocker? Like, do you question you know i never i don't know if i ever really officially called myself a punk um it sounds kind of funny to say but i was always really into music and certain subcultures very much shaped my identity and uh you know not only as a teenager but i think a lot of kind of my my tastes and my influences and even certain perceptions i have of the world come from my attraction to uh, to certain types of music. And when I was a teenager, the first band I really loved was the Beach Boys. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with the Beach Boys. And I would go to all these garage sales with my parents and we would find uh, cassette tapes that people were selling at these garage sales of the Beach Boys. And my parents would let me buy them and play them in the car. And uh, people who are are younger than me are like, what's a cassette tape and why would you play it in a car? But, you know, there's a certain age group where you you know what I'm talking about out there. So, um, you know, I love the Beach Boys, but I was never into popular music and my parents were not interested in popular culture at all. They were much older than me, but they had me in their mid forties. And I used to ask them like, what was it like to grow up in the sixties when the hippie movement was happening? And my mom would be like, 
I never even noticed that was going on, you know? <laughs> so I had no, I had a total clean slate. Like no one was influencing me on anything. And so the only band I liked was the Beach Boys until I was about 12. And then I saw a Ramones video on Much Music, which is the Canadian version of MTV. And uh, I was like, wow, what is this? It was that Pet Cemetery song they did for the movie. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch the video. It's great. Um, but uh, that just kind of opened this door. And I was like, what is this music? And who are these people? You know, these weird, long-haired guys. And why are they playing in a cemetery? And I didn't know what it was, but I really liked it. And so I just started really getting into punk, but not new punk, you know? I mean, this mm -hmm. was in the 90s and grunge had already kind of died out and you know, it was just a different, it was just a totally different aesthetic that it had. And, uh, and, and through that, I found other things like goth bands, you know, Sisters of Mercy and um, The Cure. And I was, I just kind of fell down this rabbit hole and I got really into other things like The Smiths and yeah, these bands from the seventies and eighties that were really not cool in the nineties at all. Um, they've had a big resurgence since then, but I just stayed in those eras. And in, in a lot of ways, I'm still in those eras. And I was really, you know, I grew up in Toronto and I was so interested in, in how influential punk was in uh, New York City and London and just watching how much that, uh, that movement actually has influenced so many things we still have today in fashion and music and pop culture, in the way bands tour, uh, in DIY culture, you know, those things have actually permeated so much of what we have now and you don't even notice it anymore but it's not an underground movement at all it's very much been a mainstream movement and has changed things uh in so many ways that yeah people don't even notice or appreciate at this point in time but i always found that very interesting that you know everyone thinks that punk is this outsider thing when really it took over so much and oh, yeah. i was so interested like where you know were there punk bands in Toronto? And I found out that there were, but no one had really written anything about them. And it was really hard to find out anything on them. It was a very underdocumented scene. But when I was nearing the end of high school, I was really obsessed with finding out what had happened in Toronto. And it took me a few years. I went, um, you know, I had, I did have a sordid past in a way, and I went off on a lot of detours and eventually went to journalism school when I was 21. And that was, a three-year program. And by the time I was out of that program, by the, the final year, I had decided, I kept looking for a book on Toronto punk. And I was like, someone has got to write a book about these bands because it's so interesting. I'm like, what happened here, right? There was, there was a whole, we had our whole own little movement and no one's talking about it. And I really truly expected that like any day, a book was just gonna magically appear at the bookstore and it didn't. And so when I finished journalism school, I just decided, I'm like, I'm gonna write this book. I'm, I'm done college, I have the time. You know, I just studied how to be a journalist. I'm going to go out and be a journalist. I'm going to track down all these people and find out what the history of punk was in Toronto. And so that's what I did when I graduated college. And it was, um, yeah, it was the first book of its kind to actually look at, at all those bands and document that history. And uh, I just did it because I really wanted to. It wasn't, it wasn't because, you know, people say, oh, you must love, really love punk. And like, I, I do in a way. I think there are other things I love a little bit more, mm -hmm. but I was just so compelled to find out, yeah, what had happened. And, and I just, I was out of pure curiosity. I had to know what Toronto's 
influence was and, and contribution was on, on punk history. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess in a way, a book did magically appear at the bookstore about Toronto punk. It, it was did. just sort of you had to do it and you learned that magic is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it really is, right? And, and yeah. sometimes too, you know, that that taught me a lot about following your ideas, right? And following what inspires you. I think that sometimes things catch our eye for a reason, right? And we have to Mm -hmm. really pay attention to what we feel curious about because it's important to allow yourself to kind of follow what is calling to you and, and, and to pay attention to ideas that I think keep returning, right? Like I had this idea that kept coming back to me over and over again. And yeah, I was looking for it out in the world and it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But if I had just kind of ignored it, then I wouldn't have written that book and a lot of other things in my life wouldn't have happened. Right. That's actually how I met my husband was through writing that book. Um, Yeah. And uh, I I interviewed his dad because his dad was in a punk band that I was documenting. And then I ended up meeting my husband in the process. And anyway, so, you know, a lot of these things just sort of conspired to to shape me and and shape my life into what it is now. Uh, It doesn't seem like an obvious entry point, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, that's, that's actually a really cool story. I wasn't expecting that much of a story about this book but that's cool because it kind of it's what got you writing it's what got Mm -hmm. you interested in sort of like investigating and pursuing topics um did it lead into you learning tarot at all like when did you start working with tarot or learning tarot yeah yeah it's an interesting question because i i think sometimes people are have trouble marrying those two things you know like how did i write a book about punk and, and where does all that come into play because punk is actually very that culture can be very nihilistic and and uh, it's not uncommon to meet people in there who are hardcore atheists. It's not a really spiritual subculture in a lot of ways, right? It can be, there's a lot of crossover and in other smaller factions, but um, I was into tarot way before I was really into music. I was always interested in the occult and, you know, for lack of a better term, psychic work. Um, mm-hmm. When I was a kid, my mom, was really into readings and she would have psychics over to the house and they would do group readings for parties she would have. And then she would let me listen to the cassette tapes after again, cassettes, uh, coming back to that. Um, (laughs) but, uh, she would let me listen to, to these group readings later and I would get to hear everybody's predictions and their reactions and everything. And it really normalized readings for me in a way. Right. I Mm -hmm. didn't, you know, some of my friends had these really strict religious upbringings and they weren't allowed to think about this, these things or talk about them or explore them. But my upbringing was a bit different from that where my mom was really open to it and interested. And I was always interested myself in, in ghosts and, and aliens and all these things. Right. So I always had that interest. And when I was 13, I got a, a book, it's called the little book of fortune telling. And we bought it at the grocery store and, uh, there was a chapter in there about how to read playing cards. So I spent a whole summer teaching myself how to read playing cards from that chapter. Hmm. And I wasn't, I wouldn't think I was good at, at it at all, but um, I was really interested in this idea that you could get information from card reading. There's something about that that I found very interesting because everyone has a deck of cards at home, right? Right, right. So that was kind of how I started was just, again, following my curiosity, um, you know, paying attention to what was interesting to me, making time for it. And then as I got a little bit older, still in my teen years, I got a tarot deck 
but I didn't know how to use it. And terror is a funny thing to learn, right? It's not as easy as people think it is sometimes. And uh, oh, I definitely yeah. thought like it was just going to be it's this instant experience. I'd get this deck and I'd know something, you know, um, and I knew nothing. But I didn't have the patience to, to actually sit down and learn it. And I didn't really understand that tarot is a skill, right? I didn't know it was something you had to actually really, you know, practice at and, and work at. And, you know, I mean, teenagers in general aren't really known for being that patient, right? So I just, you know, I didn't have the commitment I needed at the time. I put it aside and I came back to it later. But actually what prompted me to come back to it was when that punk book came out because I had put really three years of my life into writing that book. And I worked on it every day. And uh, when it was done, I felt a void. I had never had that before. And people who work on creative projects will understand this, but this was my first like real baby, right? So mm -hmm. I didn't, no one had prepared me for this feeling that you get when you finish working on something and then it's over and it's out and it's not yours anymore. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So you were, you were lost and alone in the world. and I was. I really was. And the book itself was, was a challenge because, you know, when you're, when you're doing a, um, a book where your characters are alive, they can call you up and talk to you. And, and so it's a bit stressful to do a project like that, too, because all the interview subjects have expectations, right, around what this book is, is going to do for them. Some, mm -hmm. people, some of them thought I was going to make them famous, which I cannot, cannot do and still cannot do. Sorry, guys, but not going to happen. Well, I'm hoping that you make <laughs> me famous by being right. on my podcast. So, Well, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just, you know, I was working at a nonprofit job when, um, you know, uh, when I finished that book and I, you know, I was like, I have to do something. And I started working in the nonprofit industry and it wasn't as great as I thought it was going to be. And, and I, I didn't have another project to throw myself into. And I was like, wow, what am I going to do now? Right. And I really would walk around. I would walk to work every day and be like, I'm looking for something and I don't know what it is. And I went to see an astrologer I was following and he just casually mentioned tarot to me. He was like, I have clients who, you know, you remind me of, and they're really into tarot. Is that something that you're into? And I was like, man, I've been thinking about this book and working on this book all this time and going to journalism school all these last years. And I was like, I have not thought about tarot or card reading in a long time. Uh, but when he said that, it, it kind of was like someone handing me a glass of water and I didn't know that I was thirsty, right? It was like, I need to go out and get a tarot deck because I think that that might really help me, right? I, I, mm -hmm. And I just, it was just the right time to hear something like that because I, I needed, I had a void and that filled it. And when I started getting back into tarot, I remembered all the things that I liked about it as a kid. And I was like, I'm really going to do this this time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of cool. So it did sort of lead you there in a, I mean, not directly. It's not like you came across mm -hmm. some punk tarot song and you were like, oh, but it was more like <laughs> the, the absence of a project led you in. Yes. That's kind of a, that's yes. kind of an interesting connection. Um, so then when you started learning tarot, finally, what did you, uh, I mean, what did you discover? How did you go from like, oh, I'm going to learn tarot to like, I'm going to now teach it to other people or even start giving uh, readings? Because you do yeah. you do professional tarot readings. I do. Yeah. yeah. It was a long process. I 
when I, when I first got into tarot, it was really personal. Yeah. It was for really personal reasons. Right. I just, I needed something. I was looking for something and tarot was there and I was interested in it. I had no intention of one day having a tarot business or necessarily being a professional reader. I, I was definitely interested in reading for other people because I'd had readings and you know, I really liked not just tarot readings, but really any kind of reading, right? Um, I'd had some tarot readings at psychic fairs I'd gone to with my mom when I was in high school and things like that. And yeah, I had an astrology reading and, and I'd seen other types of diviners. And every time I felt like I really got something useful out of the experience. And I thought, you know, that's a cool thing to do, right? And And so I had an aspiration that I would like to be able to be good enough at tarot to read for other people. I, again, I wasn't thinking necessarily in a professional capacity, but I really wanted to be able to give readings to my friends and things like that. So um, I started just doing practice readings really, because I needed the experience, right? I think there's always this kind of balance we have to strike between how much are we studying mm-hmm. and how much are we actually implementing that knowledge and, and, giving ourselves that hands-on experience right um yeah yeah yeah. that's a good yeah because it it took me a really long time i i never wanted to give readings to other people i kind of got tricked into it like i'd been i'd been studying tarot but i'd been using it sort of as part of my practice you know as a yeah meditative thing so i was you know and and i'd been doing it for i don't know like four or five years pretty steadily before somebody sort of was like oh you've got a tarot deck will you give me a reading and people were egging me on. I was like, well, I guess I'm giving somebody a tarot reading now. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I was, I was, uh, your point there though, about like, you have to study it as well as use it and kind of come to a balance there is important because it's not until you have to, uh, I mean, I can say now that, that actually having to use tarot for readings for other people has taught me so much more than reading about it in a book or, staring at it and contemplating it like i need both you know both of those things are useful but actually using it seems to really have opened the doors a lot mm-hmm. it, it really does and also you know what i found useful when i was practicing on people is yeah i would have one idea of what the cards meant right based off of what you know all that hard work we do to memorize all those meanings and then you realize the meanings go out the window sometimes but Mm -hmm. again you have to learn that right and and i found it so interesting you know thinking of what what i knew to be quote unquote right on paper about some of the cards versus what an acquaintance might share with me about you know what was happening and and where i would actually sometimes see those reflected in the cards that i wouldn't have been able to see if if i again have that practice of having people kind of put their experiences into words mm-hmm. so that i could look back at the cards and figure out okay where would i see that and where would those things come into play in in what i'm looking at here yeah so it is you know it is an interesting thing but that was how i learned really was yeah just um doing a lot a lot of practice readings and You know, it was about a seven year process from Mm -hmm. when I started learning tarot into when I went full time as a tarot reader. Uh, It's a it sounds long. And sometimes I worry when I say that, that people are going to be discouraged, maybe. And they're going to be like, oh, that just sounds like a long time. And I want to you know, I want to be professional right now. Right. Because I know that there is sometimes that pressure people have 
um, where, you know, they, they want to learn tarot and they want to do it as fast as possible and start a business as soon as possible. But, you know, I think because I wasn't going in with that idea that I, I had a, some kind of pressure to turn it into a career, it just allowed me to really take my time with it. And mm-hmm. so when I did realize that this was something I wanted to do and that it was something I felt I could do, I was so ready to do it because I had developed those skills over that seven years, right? And so when I started building my business and charging for readings and, and taking on clients, I had a I had a level of confidence in my skills that I don't think I would have had if I had done it sooner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, everyone kind of has their own timeline and comes to it differently, but I just know that for me, getting to that point, I was really, really, really ready by then. And I also had an idea of kind of like what goes into the the people management of reading as well, right? Client right. management mm-hmm. and setting expectations and all of that, which um, you don't always get if you, you're kind of rushing out of the gate, right? Because there is more to being a professional reader than just reading cards. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I guess it's probably something that a lot of us don't even really think about when we get into it, you know, the whole idea of client management or... Yeah, it's a lot of yeah, work. It is. Yeah, it can yeah. be. It, it can be a lot yeah. of work. Um, and you teach people now, like you teach people yeah. how to read tarot. And um, yeah, I mean, you've got on your Instagram page, you've got all these little great videos where you have. I mean, if a lot of it feels sort of like you spend a lot of time convincing people that uh, getting started with tarot should not be scary, right? Sort of like mm. you can do it. You can you yeah. can get into this and start learning this, uh, which I really appreciate. And I. You know, I sometimes watch some of your videos and I'm like, oh, that's not true. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever actually thought that and then stuck with it. I, then I've been like, well, you know, maybe, I mean, when you're first starting out, I guess you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Um, but what do you... Like what? Like what? What? Give me an example. <laughs> oh, uh, I think one of them was um, you... This is probably a couple months ago. You had, a, I think, a video where you were like, you don't need to memorize the meanings of tarot. And I was like... <laughs> And then I thought about it and I was like, you know what, when you started out, you really don't need to memorize the meanings mm-hmm. of tarot. I mean, mm-hmm. as you're going along, if you want to have like, uh, you know, meaningful interactions about specific cards with other tarot readers, you have to have like a common ground so you can both talk about the yes. card. Yes, yes. Um, if you want to, you know, if you're learning like um, a fully illustrated deck, like the Rider Waite Smith, where every single card has a picture on it, and then you switch over to a deck that's like pips, you're going to have mm-hmm. to have something memorized about the cards, or you're going to get in there and it's just going to be numbers, and you'll be like, I don't know. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I guess, um, but, and also I think that there is something very, uh, I, I, I guess, sort of like magical or intimate that happens with the tarot deck when the meanings of the cards are like, integrated into your memory not so that they're just sort of like rote but but again that's not something that you need to get started and it's not and i do think that it's a very intimidating thing i mean that's 78 weird little meanings that you have to memorize or you know 156 if you're doing reversals (laughs) yeah i mean it's an interesting thing right because i you know on one hand i i agree in that there are there the card meanings are common ground, right? Yeah, there is mm-hmm. this common um, acceptance, and there aren't there aren't things that again are universally accepted among tarot readers, right? Which is also something I think beginners don't always understand is that we're not all speaking the same language all the time, mm-hmm. and so sometimes you know I, I 
uh, I take on a, a small number of private students every year and they're like, sometimes confused because they're listening to all these different people on social media and one person saying this and someone else is saying that and then they're listening to me and I'm saying something completely different and they're like why did you say this and so and so said that and then the blah, 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 right mm-hmm. and I'm like look <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we tend to agree that you know aces mean new beginnings right and yeah. pentacles can mean work and money you know there those <laughs> things are are the, right, the universal right. uh agreements but those might be once the only you get two into, Yeah. Once you get into the, you know, the deeper philosophy, everyone has their own approaches and techniques and they, they, they can all work, but they're not all going to work for everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think with the memorization and the meanings, you know, what I found for me was that I spent so much time memorizing all these meanings and then I would sit down and actually, yeah, put it into practice. And I'd realize sometimes, you know, the bigger thing to focus on also is figuring out how do you put this into context, right? And and so I've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of context in tarot, because you could look at a card like eight of pentacles and say, that means mastery, or that means hard work, Mm -hmm. but in relation to what, right? And how does that start to play into to getting to a deeper layer with that? So those keywords sometimes might be good prompts to get you started and to give you some kind of entry point into a card, but the context itself is really going to also influence where you're taking an interpretation. And then there is also the whole other layer of looking at the card itself, right? Are you reading the artwork or are you just kind of running through a list of meanings through your memory and, and using tarot, like a flashcard. Right. Right. Um, I, you know, I tend to teach more about context and I teach a lot about how to actually read the artwork on a tarot card more than what the cards mean, because people write whole essays on tarot meanings, right? I've written Mm -hmm. whole essays on tarot meanings. You're not going to memorize, you know, a a 2000 word description that I give you about the two of cups. You're just not, why would you do that? That's just silly, right? Let's just really, you know, so if you, if I like to get people focusing on actually learning how to put um, the pictures that they're seeing into words and mm-hmm. use tarot as a language, and then that way it becomes more fluid and, and easier to contextualize rather than trying to fit in those rote meanings uh, into a category or a topic on a reading that it might not always actually work for. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that brings up i mean i think that's a that's a really interesting way to do it i know that like when i'm reading uh if it's a deck that i'm not as familiar with like i will ha- i will draw the card and in my head i will see like the rider Waite smith picture mm. and mm-hmm. i will kind of use both of those but sometimes you get like those theme decks or art decks that where it could be kind of obvious that whoever created the deck, even though the art on the deck might be incredibly gorgeous and there might be a lot of great themes running through them, the theme, the cards, uh, the artwork on the cards departs so drastically or sometimes subtly, but but importantly from sort of like the traditional meaning, that can be kind of a weird stumbling block. Do you do you run into that problem a lot? How do you deal with that with uh, with uh, decks that aren't totally following the uh i don't know the the agreed upon path or whatever yeah. we want to call it yeah it's such an interesting question one thing i love to do with readers who are kind of ready you know i always recommend first just having one deck that you really learn on and and to know at least one tarot deck inside and out so that when you say you know think of the king of wands you know exactly what that looks like in your deck right mm-hmm 
Um, I think that's a really good point to be at, to be able to, to know a whole deck, you know, off, off the top of your head like that. Um, but one thing that I love to do when tarot readers are ready and they do know a deck really well, and they've been looking at those same cards over and over again is to start getting them to compare to other cards and start to see how would you read those deviations differently? Because I do go a lot off of the image in tarot and, so I do have certain decks that I like to work with, with clients and with students. The Rider-Waite-Smith is one that I teach on. I'm a big fan of the Cosmic Tarot for client readings. Uh, I like the Morgan Greer, but even those ones, they're pretty true to the Rider-Waite-Smith, but they mm-hmm. do have these certain cards will come up and it's a totally different kind of image than the one that you're used to from the Rider-Waite-Smith. And I tend to read what I'm seeing because that's the deck that I'm reading from. And that's the deck that is, is again, delivering the message. It's where we're trying to get the information that we're seeking out through that moment of divination. Mm -hmm. So I go with that. Although I do the same thing that you do. It's always in the back of my mind where I'm like, okay, in the Rider with Smith, this looks like this, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I can't, yeah, I can't get that. You can't uh, get away from your first deck. (laughs) Image out of it. But I do also think about it as a root image and, um, um, I do the same, you know, I also really love Marseille decks and I do the same when, you know, I think about the Rider-Waite-Smith where, you know, I think okay, High Priestess is also the Pope S, right? So she's not always what she seems to be, mm-hmm. right? The magician is a street vendor, not always what he seems to be, right? So I also think about the root images in those ways too. And, and sometimes, um, you know, just how remembering how layered tarot is and how many different directions the cards can go in, right? But again, as long as we're getting back to the question and keeping things in context, that's really what's most important, right? Is that you're mm-hmm. not going off on all these different ideas and paths that are not relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so regarding, so then regarding sort of like reading the images and, and looking at the images to interpret the cards, uh, you had a post on your blog uh, recently about the role of intuition in tarot and you were sort of mm. arguing that like intuition or building intuition is something that that we do hear a lot about in the community you know I mean but that it's not necessarily well man I've got some thoughts on this that I'm trying to put in yeah. why don't why don't you tell me what your thought is like <laughs> okay how do you how do you feel intuition plays into tarot reading Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about this so much because I think, you know, my my views have evolved. My views and assumptions about tarot obviously have changed over time, right? You know, I mentioned earlier when I first got a tarot deck, I thought it was going to be this instantaneous experience, right? It was just going to tell me something and I would magically know things. And, you know, we often find out that's not true. Um, (laughs) you know, and I do, you know, I do believe that tarot is a skill, right. And it's something that we acquire. And yeah, I've thought about this over the years and, you know, I've really wrestled with this because I know that a lot of times people will want to learn tarot because it gets so associated with intuition and and also psychic development right Mm -hmm. and that that's a big draw for people and a lot of times i think there's a a common thread for many tarot readers that we come to tarot when we are looking for something and we might have trouble also trusting in ourselves right and we're trying to develop that 
that sense of self, you know, um, how do I really find my voice in this world? How do I tap into my potential and my power? And tarot is very alluring for those things because it, it really can help you do that. And I think that many people, again, not all, but many people tend to want to learn tarot because they're interested in that intuitive component. But I think we need to be really clear about what we mean by intuition and yeah, I was just about how to that really works, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, because, you know, I always, I've always seen intuition as not so much a psychic ability in terms of, say, getting a vision or, or you know, um, being able to make a prediction. And I think it gets conflated with that a little bit, right? I think we tend to think of intuition sometimes as clairvoyance or this ability to, to channel uh, and, you know, yeah, and again, get some kind of download, right? Um, and personally, you know, I just, just through working with clients over the years, you know, I, I've often reminded myself that it, I don't know how much it serves people necessarily for them to, to be tuned into my intuition as a tarot reader. Right. I think when we're working with other people, it's like, well, why, why would my oh, intuition oh. kick in for someone else? They need to be tapped into their own intuition because intuition is very instinctive in a lot of ways. It's your gut feeling. Yeah. That why makes would my sense. gut, right? Yeah. yeah. So why would my intuition be wired to all these different people? You know, I did some math recently and I figured I've done about 3000 tarot readings for people. It's a lot of people. <laughs> I don't think that my intuition, you know, is kind of like wired for all these different people and all their different paths in life and the decisions they need to make. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's not for me to necessarily kind of meddle with and get into. Um, I think my intuition really is here to serve me and I might have an intuition about, um, again, a message that I could see in the cards. Right. I, I think it's a you know, in some ways, a creative process to read where, yes, you can take a reading in so many different directions, but ultimately you need to be able to intuit the right answer, the mm -hmm. most accurate and effective answer when you could have a thousand different answers. Right. So yeah. I think my intuition might help with that, but I don't know that intuition is always geared towards helping other people sort out their own intuitive problems or their own decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. um, because again, I don't know people well enough. I'm not tuned into them well enough to really be able to make that call about what's best for them in their life. And I don't want to, you know, I want people to feel um, like, you know, they actually have the capacity to make the judgment call that they need to make in their own lives. Right. right? Yeah. So, I think about that. And then I think about sometimes too the, the struggles that we have when it comes to just the mechanics of tarot and learning tarot and how it, it feels nice to tell someone, you know, again, what does your intuition tell you when you look at a card or go with what resonates with you in, in regards to an answer. But we do have to also apply a little bit of logic to our tarot readings, because again, you know, just through my experience in teaching people tarot, I've seen sometimes some students focus so much on getting that intuitive hit that they they say things that are so far off from what the cards are, are showing them or so far off from the actual answer uh, or, or, you know, the answer that would relate to the question that they're not actually not doing themselves any favors by trying to be purely intuitive in their answer because mm -hmm. they're just kind of pulling things out of thin air. And I think it's a, um, a struggle sometimes for all of us to really figure out 
what is our intuition saying versus what is just a passing thought versus what is a feeling, what is a mood that I'm in. All those things can also be very hard to sort out. Mm -hmm. And so I think intuition certainly plays a role in spiritual development overall, and it can play a role in divination. But I worry sometimes that there can be an overemphasis on intuitive development in tarot when it it overlooks the necessity also of developing your skill set as a tarot reader and using some discernment bringing some logic into it and remembering that again you need to stay on card and you need to stay within context of something because if again if you're starting to read for other people and you're just kind of going off of what might be a passing thought, it's really easy to start to steer people in the wrong direction sometimes mm-hmm. if you don't know how to really channel that that energy and, and use that muscle accurately. So I, I do think about that. I think that sometimes we need to have a bit of a balance there because we can really go too esoteric. And sometimes I see people get too esoteric yeah. uh, in, in the spiritual community and and they're not grounded anymore. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was having a. I was thinking about something while you uh, while you were saying that. I was thinking like, you know, at the beginning of of your thoughts on intuition, you were talking about uh, you know sort of doubting that your intuition is connected to each of the three thousand different yeah. people that you've given readings for. Do you think sometimes there is an element to reading cards where you sort of like lay out the cards and you show the artwork to? your client and as you're describing it to them you're kind of like opening a door to their intuition so that they can start to sort of have an experience like you're almost like guiding them through uh an intuitive <clears throat> excuse me an intuitive experience with the cards mm-hmm. so I, sometimes i do readings where there will be somebody who doesn't know what they want the reading to be about and i'm like okay we're going to do a general reading we're going to let the the cards tell us and I will draw a card and I'll be like oh this card describes blah 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 and they'll be like oh I know what this is about Mm. you know where where I I guess it almost feels there like all I'm doing is giving them a window and they're looking through it and saying seeing where we're going Mm -hmm. do you think that that might be kind of sometimes the role of the reader yeah that's interesting I do I do think that a lot of the times I don't really think this. I've also I also know this to happen quite often that and and you might have this too is is sometimes you know people are looking for an answer on something and you tell them and they're like that's already what I was thinking or mm-hmm. I was already talking about that or that's what I was going to do anyway. And it doesn't really tell them anything new, but I, I do think that that's also part of the role is yes, to kind of put it back onto them and give them that confirmation to say, okay, well, you know, you, you were looking for a sign, right? Mm-hmm. You must've come here cause you're looking for some kind of sign. This is it. You know, the cards are telling you the exact thing you already know you want to do. What more could you ask? Right. And so mm-hmm. I think that also puts that again, that, it, yeah, that intuitive capacity back on the client because it confirms what they're already feeling or sensing, right? They're sensing, you know, their instinct is telling them it's ready for a change in direction or I'm ready for a new priority. Right. And then the cards kind of say, yep, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and all, all the reader is doing is just translating that message. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Sometimes I look at those, uh, I I call those uh, kick in the pants readings. Yes. <laughs> Where they, they come to you for, for advice on something and you tell them and you're like, oh, I, I knew that was what I was supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Yeah. But I also tell people, I'm like, that's a good thing. You yeah. know, I'd much rather have you have a reading where you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. than have you say, man, this is so left field. I have no idea. Like why, are, you know, where is this coming from? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's actually a good sign when people get that, that confirmation, even if it's not as exciting. Right. Uh, I, I'd rather have that affirmed for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, so basically, readers out there shouldn't worry so much about developing. You don't necessarily need to have uh, your finger on the pulse of the universe to read tarot cards. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> you know, I think I think it's important to, you know, I think it's really important, I think, to be, you know, able to observe and be aware, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes, you know, there there are, are theories out there that that's what intuition is, right? That intuitive people are just really good at, at these kind of very subtle observations and picking up on cues. Um, I don't think that tarot requires that you be a psychic, right? I think that that's also really why I I like to stress this idea that you you don't have to spend all this time learning how to get these, you know, big intuitive hits or or visions, just learn how to read your cards. Mm -hmm. They're full of information and it sounds so simple to sit there and learn how to read a piece of artwork. But honestly, I I am a pretty logical person in a lot of ways. It's so uncanny how literal and accurate tarot can be when you just let yourself learn to read the pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you see exactly what is happening, right? You see, you know, things that are just so clear. And yeah, I, you know, to your point, I've, I've sometimes shown things to clients where, you know, they've been in, you know, sticky situations, right? Um, love triangles and things, and we'll have something like the Three of Cups, and I'll say, well, you know, there's your your third your third wheels right there, you know, um, it's, it's really oddly reflective. And I think that when we allow ourselves to let tarot be tarot and not feel like we have to add on all these extra bells and whistles into the process, your readings can really start to sing and they fly Mm -hmm. that way. I, I, I tend to divert readers who are studying from feeling like they need to stretch themselves so much and learn all these different things at once to the point where it takes away from actually learning how to read cards. Yeah. Tarot, I mean, it can be as complicated as you want to make it. You know I mean? There's the, there's all the different astrological stuff and like the golden dawns attributions and there's colors and there's musical notes and there's, I don't know, Kabbalah and astrology and numerology and all of it. And you know, uh, for some people that works really well. Some people have Mm -hmm. brains that are just made for that and they need Mm -hmm. that kind of like extra structure, but it's not necessary in order to read tarot. I mean, all of that stuff was added in the 1890s. It's all, it's all new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I, when I saw you speak, uh, at the tarot symposium last year geez that feels like 10 years ago doesn't it it does i don't think i i I didn't have any gray hair then i don't think (laughs) (laughs) um but you in in your uh your lecture you had a couple of things that i thought were really interesting one of them was um sort of like this question of how um people who are not tarot readers who are looking for a tarot reader can evaluate the uh 
I don't know, I guess, competency or, or skill of, of, you know, potential readers. Um, but that sort of led into this conversation about, like, tarot as a lifestyle. Like, when we take up the mantle of being a tarot reader or a professional reader, there's something that we... There's a responsibility that we have uh, to basically, like, our community of readers. Like, we should not be, you know, uh, con men. We should not be, um, you know bank robbers or whatever although mm-hmm. if you could mm-hmm. figure out a way for tarot to help you with rob a bank maybe the rest of us wouldn't need to be tarot readers maybe we could all just rob banks and live that way <laughs> <laughs> um but uh so i you know i i don't know that any non-tarot readers will ever uh, listen this far into the podcast but sure. mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering for the tarot readers out there like how would you tell them to um, like what are some things that we can do to present ourselves to the non tarot community you know to the to the billions of people out there who might want a tarot reading like how do you show your worth <laughs> I guess for you yeah. just to have it in your name but <laughs> <laughs> It's, you know, this is such an interesting topic. Um, uh, And I don't, you know, I don't have all the answers on these things. I have a lot of thoughts uh, for sure. And I think many readers out there do. But yeah, with that talk I gave, you know, one of the reasons behind doing that was I, you know, I just have been always concerned with how how easy easy it can be sometimes for for uh, fraudulent activity to slip into this kind of work and it's always been like that like that right mm-hmm. um and there are you know different i think different levels of unethical practices happening and fraudulent practices happening right there are some that are, are really you know big and serious operations right there are the you know the people who have clients come in and they do a little reading for 40 bucks and then they say, Oh, you got a curse on you. But if you give me $700, you know, I can remove it. Right. And, and I, I had, a, uh, someone who was working with me a few years ago who was, who was trying to get out of a situation like that, that they were in with uh, a psychic and they wow. had been working with that person for years and, um, and had, had fully believed that there was a curse on them. And then Man. they were starting to wake up and realize maybe this is not true. And I don't like things like that. No, yeah, that I don't like things like that either. really mad. And yeah. It's, it's just, uh, it's fascinating to, well, I mean, first of all, it's disgusting that anybody does that, but it's also so strange to think about the kind of like mental trap you can get in where, mm-hmm. where, where a fraudulent, you know, huckster like that could get their hooks into you. That's just terrifying. Yeah, I, I think that this is, you know, there's a couple things that are at, at play here. There might be more, but there's a couple off the, off the top of my head um, that lead into these things. And it's why it's really important to discuss ethics in in this kind of work. Um, you know, first, this is an unregulated industry, mm-hmm. right? So as long, and, and I'm not saying I necessarily want it to be regulated. I think, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what that would look like. Uh <laughs> The bureaucracy of <laughs> the tarot police. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know, right? So I think there are pros and cons to this being an un- unregulated industry, but because it's unregulated, again, you know, kind of anything goes, right? And it's really easy for someone to set up shop and say, you know, I can do this, right? And people, you know, 
consumers like that idea sometimes. They like this idea of maybe, you know, seeing someone who's a fourth generation psychic and that's not, you know, not throwing shade at anyone who's legitimately a fourth generation psychic. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you see these readers out there sometimes who say, you know, fourth generation psychic, I'm 100% accurate. I can tell you, you know, your past, present, future. I can give you lottery numbers. I can do this. I can do that. And, And sometimes those are also the same people who can't do anything right they're just like Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna tell someone i'm psychic i'm gonna take the money because consumers really put a lot of faith into this kind of work and they're so willing to believe that they are very easily preyed upon by people who are not being honest about their skills or abilities so what happens if you're legitimately a fourth generation psychic who can give someone all the you know all the magic answers right but you're marketing yourself in the exact same way as the scammer down the street that's mm-hmm. really tricky. Yeah. Right. So I think that, you know, that's one, one aspect is that there's no barrier to entry here and there's no way to really prove credentials in any way. Um, the second, you know, thing that we have to factor in now is, is social media and how easy it is to, again, for people to set up shop and, you know, there's a whole new level of, scams happening with, you know, a lot of tarot readers and other diviners getting their profiles stolen. Imposters are setting up accounts under their names. They're trying to contact um, those people's followers and saying, Hey, you know, I got, I have a special message for you, right? 70 bucks, send it by PayPal. I'll give you a reading. And those scammers are preying off the trust that everyone has built up with their community, right? Right, These are, you know, they're using familiar faces. They're using names that followers have been perhaps engaged with for a long time. It's exciting if you're a fan of a tarot reader or another diviner and you've wanted a reading from that person for a long time and all of a sudden they have a special message for you. It's really exciting to hear for some people, right? I actually just got one of those this morning. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the one of those scam accounts followed me, and I I just blocked it right away, so I didn't get a chance to hear yeah. what their special message would be. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, it's going to be you know, send me send me a hundred bucks by pay, PayPal friends and family, right? That's the special right. message, and then you're never going to hear from them again. Um, now that's intuition. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I think that there's this, yeah. There, you know, all these factors are, are you know crossing over with each other, right? Um, No barrier to entry, the willingness on consumers part to trust. Now, you know, you throw technology into the mix and how quickly these things happen, right? How easy it is for, for con artists to reach out to willing communities, right? Hungry communities that want to hear from these people. It's such a challenge. So anyway, I think that as, as tarot readers, you know, we need to be mindful of these things and we, you know, um, I don't know that we can stop it. We can't control what what people are doing, but we can always look at what we're doing and and making sure that we're upholding some level of integrity for ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So I I think first, you know, that comes down to, again, being honest with our own skills because yeah, consumers put a lot of faith into this kind of work. A lot of the times readers are working with people who really are looking for a message. Most of the time people will come to readings for two reasons, either, they have no idea why they're there and they're, you know, their friend told them it was cool and they're curious or, you know, the more serious aspect of it is they are at a crossroads in their life. They're totally stuck and they need help. Right. So, you know, you have to be mindful that you're really playing with a lot of people's emotions here. Sometimes you really, 
not to be dramatic, but you could be taking someone's life into your hands in certain ways, right? People do make decisions based off of readings. They, um, they, they can take these things really seriously. You know, I was a journalist before I did this. Sometimes people listen to me. Sometimes they didn't. When you're a tarot reader, people listen to everything you say. (laughs) They will hang on your every word, right? So if you don't know what you're doing, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I guess, think that, uh, yeah, understanding the level of responsibility you're taking on is. Yes. Is a big one. Yes, totally. And I think that that's, you know, it's a tricky thing to talk about. Right. Because I think sometimes people look at that as, as maybe, you know, gatekeeping or, or something like that. We need to use those terms sparingly. Right. It's mm-hmm. not gatekeeping if you're doing something unethical. Um. <laughs> So I I think first it just comes down to this idea of, you know, if we want to really work with integrity and, and, and have strong ethics in the community, then, you know, do we, do we actually understand the difference between doing a reading for fun for a friend versus doing a reading for a paying client? Mm -hmm. Because there is a difference, right? It's not, it's not casual anymore when someone's coming to you and and they're asking a question like, you know, um, you know, should I, should I leave my husband, for example, right? I have kids. What should I do? I, I'm, I'm really unhappy, right? People will come with really heavy questions sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's very easy to get in over your head if you're not equipped to deal with that. So I think that that's one place to start. Um, but I think the other is also legitimizing our own business processes, knowing again, that there's a lot of con artists out there, a lot of scammers. Um, this is a bit more of a practical approach, but, you know, I, I, I teach the odd business class here and there. Um, and, and I, I, every once in a while I have someone who will, you know, kind of be figuring out what to charge for their readings. And they'll say, you know, I don't want to use say a PayPal feature, like uh, the business feature, or I, I only want to do friends and family payments because I don't want to pay the fees. And my readings are not very expensive and it doesn't seem like it's worth it to pay this extra little service charge. Right. And, you know, honestly, sometimes those extra service charges really cover your butt because Mm -hmm. there's no buyer seller protection if you're doing friends and family transactions. And that's what a lot of these scammers are doing right now is friends and family transactions where there is absolutely no recourse on the consumer's part if they buy a reading through friends and family, if they don't get the reading, they can't get a refund. Right. That's why scammers use that because PayPal is just going to be like, look, you agreed to send this money to this person. It's out of our hands. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you legitimize your business processes, you have policies in place, you sometimes pay a few extra bucks to have protection for your, your clients and for yourself to make sure that if something goes wrong, you know, there's, there's no hassle right? Once money has changed hands and that you have some protection around your business, that goes a long way too. So don't be afraid to legitimize yourself. I know sometimes people start tarot businesses just to kind of get their feet wet and see if they like doing it. Mm-hmm. But as soon as money starts changing hands, it's official. Right. 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 And so if you don't have those proper protocols in place, you get the wrong client or they feel like something has gone wrong on their end. Again, it's slippery slope. Mm-hmm. Right. Just start off good. 
right? Yeah. Start with the right foundation. Even if you're like, I just want to see what it's like to have this business for a year, still set everything up properly in the mm-hmm. first place and just take it seriously. Yeah. And if the fees seem like yeah. too much, then raise your prices by five exactly. bucks. And that'll exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but sometimes I think, you know, we look at these things and we're not really ready to invest in ourselves as readers and mm-hmm. we have to get out of that mentality because, um, it, it's, it's not always easy for people to tell, you know, who's, you know, who has the experience they need. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to have, you know, X amount of experience before charging for readings, right? When you're ready, you're ready. Mm-hmm. You know, go for it if it if it's if it's time. Um, but but yeah, just make sure that you're really doing it right. And and again, make sure that you really know what the responsibility is that's involved once you get started. Yeah, I think that's some really good insight. Yeah, it does I guess also I think uh, one thing that can really help when you are trying to legitimate legitimatize yourself is uh, to get involved in like the online tarot community. Mm. You know, I mean, I think that um, mm-hmm. it probably helps if somebody is looking for a tarot reading and they go and they see, you know, a potential tarot reader who's talking to other tarot readers and isn't like blocked by them on Instagram or oh. <laughs> or nobody's nobody's like right. making fun of them for being you know secret Nazis or whatever like. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think, uh, that, that might also be a good way to do it too. Like get involved. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point actually. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that before, but that's an interesting point. You know, it's, it's kind of, yeah. Cause I always, I always kind of worry about like using, um, using social media to market yourself, it's mm-hmm. so easy to make, you know, Instagram or Twitter friends with other tarot readers. But mm-hmm. are you actually connecting to people who aren't looking for, who aren't tarot readers, who just might want to hire a tarot reader? Like that's a much right. harder right. audience to reach. But when those people do go looking and they use like whatever hashtag or search and they find you and they see that you are followed by and are following, you know, other tarot readers, that probably helps a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's an interesting one. Um I think that that could it, yeah, it could help. I I I wonder though about people, you know, sometimes people are just not online, right? But mm-hmm. they're really great at what they do. And True. and again, I don't always know, you know, I could be friends with people. But I don't always know if they're good at what they do, right? I might like <laughs> hanging out with them, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so so there's that. But there's also, you know, one thing that uh, I'm a little bit suspicious about social media in general, right? Mm-hmm. Again, because, you know, secretly I still live in the 80s. Um, but <laughs> uh, I mean, is Robert know, Smith even on social media? <laughs> He is, he is actually, oh, really? but he, yeah, he's, he, he retweets a lot of news or at least last time I, I looked at his Twitter profile, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, cause the thing is, I think about this a lot too. And I, again, I don't have all the answers. I just, you know, I just have uh, opinions, but, um, sometimes people are really good at social media. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, I don't know if they're, if they're always, good at what they do necessarily. And, and I've seen sometimes people who are really new to practices, right? You know, they'll talk a lot about astrology or they'll talk a lot about tarot or something like that. 
and they, they're just getting into it as a hobby. And then all of a sudden their social media blows up and they'll have a hundred thousand followers. You know what I mean? Because they're really, you know, there's something, and I don't know what it is. There's always that it factor with certain social media accounts, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes they're not really posting anything that's different from what anyone else is doing, but for whatever reason, people really gravitate to that account. And, you know, and I, sometimes I think, it's not always an easy way to tell just looking on social media. If someone has a hundred thousand followers, they're not always as experienced as the tarot reader who's been around for 30 years, but maybe just got on Instagram a month ago because finally, you know, someone in, in one of their classes was like, you know, Janet, you should really <laughs> get on social media because you're so good at this and you've been doing this for so long. Right. So I don't know. Okay, you know that I'm not is sure. A, that's, a, that's a good yeah. point. That is a really good point. Yeah. Although, yeah, I, I guess I would wonder how, I mean, it could just be that I'm really bad at marketing if I'm not on the internet, but, uh, I don't even know how I would get clients without social media. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Um, I mean, it was easy when it was easy when you could have like in-person events, you know, cause then you could just go to, you know, I mean, I used to do monthly like super fast tarot readings at wine shops. And then I would just give my business card to everybody who was there. (laughs) Yeah. I I think, I think that's a good point. You know, with where we're at right now, everything that's happened since 2020 with this pandemic, I don't know where some of that stuff is going to land because I Mm -hmm. agree, you know, I used to, uh, I used to have a a residency for a couple of years in a really popular store Mm -hmm. here in Toronto. And um, so people, you know, people come and, and meet me there sometimes. And I used to do a lot of events as well and, and parties and things. And, you know, I don't know, cause that is a, that is a marketing tool, right? So, you know, even if you're still getting paid for those gigs, you're putting business cards out in people's hands. You might not be reading for everyone you mm-hmm. meet in those spaces, but you're still saying, yeah, you know, here's check out my info. Right. I don't know if we're, you know, purely online, then yeah, you, you need something. You do need a website. You need to be putting out some kind of content. Um, you know, I always recommend to people that, that the website is the place to start mm-hmm. rather than social media. I, I really don't recommend people only work purely off of social media um, because you, you don't have control over it, right? It's not really a storefront. Like a, a website mm-hmm. is a virtual storefront and it's a virtual assistant for you. And I think that having a website can also help to legitimize your work and what you do, you know, it's a great place to, you know, put all your info, all your policies, all your testimonials. Uh, You can, you know, post your own content there, give people a a look at what your point of view is on something, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, talk about things that you're doing. Right. And if you, yeah, if you end up doing an event or something like that, you know, you can have all those things on there. Right. But social media on its own, Is it, yeah, it's, it's always a tricky one for me because it, it changes so fast and, and the impressions that we get off of social media are not always the whole picture. Right. And, right. Uh, and the rules change all the time on social media too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, but I think in terms of marketing, a, a website is always going to be uh, key because I also think again, you know, you don't want to get caught out with something um, if you don't have the right policies in place. Right. And you, no one can see your policies if you're selling readings on Instagram. Mm-hmm. True. That's you know? good point. And people need to know, like, what's your rescheduling policy? What's your refund policy? You know, what, what's your cancellation policy? 
you know, people need to know those things. If you're going to be doing business, you have to set those expectations with your clients right from the start. Cause otherwise you get burned really bad. Service mm-hmm. providers get burned, but clients also need to know, like, yeah. you know, I need to know those things for myself because, um, you know, I, I personally, yeah. like it when people are reliable. Right, right. Right. So I don't like, I don't like doing business with people who might cancel on me. So I always look to see like, does this person have a really strict rescheduling policy? Cause if they do, I know they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're not messing around, but if someone's going to yeah. be like, Oh, I know we're going to meet at two on Friday, but uh, I, you know, I have to take my dog for a walk. Can we meet at, at 10 on Sunday instead? I'm going to be like, I'm never going to work with this person. <laughs> That's just me. But you know, again, I like to know that stuff. And I think consumers need to know too. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. Well, um, we've reached the end of our, of our um, podcasting time. I was wondering if you wanted to let all the listeners know where they can find you and your uh, rescheduling policy online. <laughs> yeah yeah you can find me at lizworth.com really easy if you do want to follow me on instagram uh it's lizworth tarot if, okay. if you're not awesome i will suspicious of social media <laughs> even if you are suspicious of social media your your your, your instagram account is pretty is pretty fun Thank you. There are, there are a lot you. of great little videos and lots of good hints and stuff. I, I enjoy your Instagram account. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do try to keep it fun. <laughs> uh, okay. I will make sure that there are links to those in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for this conversation and for, you know, doing a deep dive on some pretty uh, important tarot topics. Tarot thank you. Topics. This is great. I appreciate it. <laughs> This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Arnamancy.